0: Good afternoon welcome everybody uh, i often say and it's a it's a genuine sense that it's always a delight to have someone from within oxford come and share their work related to israel uh, with us and today we're lucky to have uh, uh, dr catherine bach leitner who is the ikea foundation research fellow in international relations at lady margaret hall uh, catherine wrote her DPhil here at the university of oxford dealing with the diplomatic relations between Israel, Germany and Austria her research focuses on collective memory and values within international relations mainly how world War—I'm uh, sorry mainly how the second world war and uh, the memory of the holocaust affected interstate relations and she is the author of uh, the book recently published by Oxford University Press so congratulations Catherine for this titled Collective Memory in International Relations and um, the title of her talk today is A Road Towards Atonement? mark. Why Only West Germany Came to Atone for the Nazi Crimes? Uh, the recording doesn't see my fingers doing their <laughs> quotes. <laughs> thank you for coming and thank you for that. Lecture.
1: Thanks very much, Jakov. So um, perhaps I can start by, you know, placing the question that I'm dealing today with um, in the broader kind of um, subject that I work in. So as Yakov already said, I work on memory within the discipline of international relations and political science. That means I mainly focus on how countries remember a tragic and often shameful past. So I'm interested in who the memory actors are, which version of the past becomes dominant, and why at specific points uh, in time, and what consequences this all has for societies and their national identities and their values. So I got interested in this topic because I was raised in Austria, a country that voluntarily became part of the German Reich in 1938. Yet it has, for a long time, told a very different story about its Nazi past. And particularly the stark contrast to West Germany's approach towards that same past has always puzzled me. So take, for instance, these two pictures from the post-war period. So the first picture on the left was taken in Vienna in 1955. It shows the Austrian foreign minister, together with his colleagues from the four allied powers, they are waving to the cheering crowds, because they are celebrating the Austrian state treaty which they had just signed. So this is a happy scene where people are celebrating. On the right hand side you see a very different picture that made diplomatic history. It was taken in December of 1970 at the monument dedicated to the Warsaw ghetto uprising you can see Willy Brandt kneeling in silence, while lost in the thought of millions of murdered people. So, two very different pictures. Yet these two acts have in common that they were both performed by politicians leading to former Nazi perpetrator states, Austria and West Germany. But apart from that, these scenes could not have been more different. So, one statesman gives a picture of his country's innocence and liberation from undeserved victimhood, whereas the other statesman portrays his country as a guilty, morally responsible, and remorseful perpetrator. So, from these two acts alone, it therefore becomes clear that the ways in which the Nazi legacy was officially remembered in West Germany and in Austria differed fundamentally. And this, of course, begs the obvious question as to why these memories turned out so differently. And to get an answer, I went back to the archival documents. So particularly, I looked at the diplomatic exchanges between Israelis, Austrians and West German diplomats in the 1950s. As you know, in 1952, um, West Germany and Israel signed the so-called Luxembourg Agreement about reparations, which laid, as I argue um, in this presentation, the basis for what I call the German atonement approach. So what is meant by an atonement approach? And obviously, this is a symbolic, official, political approach. Of course, there can be no real atonement for the Nazi crimes. Yet today, and broadly speaking, The duty to remember the Holocaust, the profession of responsibility for the atrocities committed, the admission of guilt and shame on part of all Germans, as well as the ensuing effort to make good again, can be said to form the cornerstone of um, Germany's national memory approach. And hereby, again, I mean the official memory approach. Of course, in any society, at any given uh, point in time, there are many competing memories out there um, in the public. Yet this official approach in West Germany was one of atonement since the Luxembourg Agreement of 1952. But even so, then, how did they really get there? And this question nowadays is not only of, um, impo- of historical interest, but also of renewed importance to a, a emerging field on um, scholars and practitioners who work in transitional justice. Wherever states and the international community want to deliver some form of restitution to victims of war crimes, they often invoke the German model. So... From Serbia to Turkey to Japan to Chile, the recommendation is always the same. When it comes to dealing with your shameful past, just do what the Germans did. However, what did they really do? And that's the central question that I um, I want to pursue in this presentation. And, you know, just as a disclaimer before I start, I mean, I don't mean to imply with all of this that... um, that the German atonement approach, you know, is desirable from a political or a moral point of view in other perpetrator states. Nor do I intend to say um, that the German approach was perfect, you know. As we all know, you know, there were many problems in West Germany as well, including issues of delayed justice. um, superficial apologies, uh, rising anti-Semitic sentiments and of course um, the emergence of the far-right movement. Therefore if we can call the German approach as a model then only in so far as it is still rare in comparison to other cases. And this returns us to the central question as to why did the Germans begin to walk down this unusual route. And now, if, if we look into the literature. So, the literature gives us the following answer as to how a country's official memory approach comes about. It emerges from within a country, from the interaction between the government and its society. In fact, there exists a large body of work that describes this domestic political struggle with memory, usually in some form of instrumentalization of the past by powerful actors to gain political legitimacy. A memory approach therefore forms as a political tool to win over a domestic national audience and to achieve um, domestic political goals. So. The memory of atonement must have been employed by political actors to win political legitimacy among the West German public. Well, this in West Germany was certainly not the case in the aftermath of World War II. In fact, the first German Chancellor, Konrad Adenauer, won the first free elections in 1949, not least because he promoted an agenda of westernization and democratization at the explicit expense of memory. In the aftermath of World War II, the west German public memory landscape was one of silence about the past. If anything, the memory was one of victimization by the war, by the Nazi regime, by the Soviet occupation, the Allied bombings, the expulsions from the East but certainly not one of the country and its people as atoning and therefore guilty perpetrators. So the assumptions of the traditional politics of memory literature therefore do not seem to apply. In the aftermath of a war, it seems highly unlikely that politicians instrumentalize memory for political gain particularly not in the form of atonement for past crimes. So the route that is suggested in the politics of memory literature doesn't seem to um, have led to the official German atonement approach. So perhaps not the domestic incentives led to this atonement, but instead the international incentive structures provided by the environment of the 1950s. In other words, did the international community, and as was often claimed retrospectively, the United States of America pushed Germany onto the road towards atonement. So on the post-war international stage, Germany, unsurprisingly, was the pariah, especially Israeli diplomats, actively worked against Germany's restoration within the international community. They fiercely opposed any participation for Germany in international organizations and meetings and all direct contacts between Israelis and Germans were forbidden. Any remaining necessary diplomatic exchanges were conducted only through the occupying powers. So Israel in the beginning years had made it crystal clear that it wanted nothing to do with Germany. At the same time, however, the Allied powers began to reconstitute their relationship with one another, which by nature entailed forming a new image for the Federal Republic of Germany. And to that end, the Western Allies, particularly the US, aimed at developing um, West Germany's democratic character. Um, The American High Commissioner for Germany, um, John McCloy, for instance, expressed in 1949 the way the Germans will behave towards the Jews will constitute the crucial test for German democracy. Notably with this, however, McCloy neither referred to Israel nor to the option of atonement. Instead, he focused on the domestic divisions and their potential to test the nascent democracy um, internally. Moreover, then, like a closer look into the exchanges happening in the big, uh, in the diplomatic back channels at the time, immediately called into question that the Allied powers, especially the U.S., were crucial in pushing Germany towards. Paying reparations to Israel. By 1951, the Allied powers had twice explicitly rejected Israeli appeals to pressure the FRG into reparation payments. While this there is also a quote here, so while the while the Soviet Union had not even replied to the Israeli appeal, the US saw no legal basis for such a move, pointing to the fact that neither the State of Israel nor the Federal Republic had existed at the time when the crimes were committed. Only when pressed further by Israeli um, Foreign Minister Moshe Sharet, his US counterpart, who was uh, Dean Ackerson at the time, revealed that financial concerns played a role in this American refusal. So with the, with, with West Germany, Uh, entirely dependent on um, U.S. aid, the U.S. simply feared that it would end up paying reparations for Germany um, themselves. However, at least the U.S. would not oppose reparations on the condition that the Germans actually pay them themselves. And by the way, a similar uninduced um, endorsement came from the British and the French. So the Israelis may go ahead and find a solution directly with Germany, but only without their direct involvement. So with these stances, the Western Allies might have been sympathetic from a moral point of view. However, they were entirely uncooperative from a real political um, point of view. For the U.S. in particular, the beginning Cold War made West Germany's rearmament and its placement within the wider Western world community a priority. The country's financial and moral punishment through reparations was not regarded as helpful to that end. So, following this logic, and that's very interesting, Ackerson, as early as in 1950 recommended to Israel to establish normal diplomatic relations with the Bundesrepublik with no preconditions attached. So we see from this, and unlike what is often claimed retrospectively, the Allied powers and the United States cannot be credited to instigate the German vote towards atonement they neither explicitly requested reparations nor did they render them, um, nor did they render the FRG's reintegration into the Western world community conditional upon them. Furthermore, when you screen the broader international zeitgeist or the, the mindset of the time in the 1950s, we find no direct hints that atonement would be regarded as a um, useful political strategy. Um, There was no international legal basis for reparations. If anything, then internationally, the contours of this idea emerged only slowly and unintentionally in the wake of the Nuremberg trials and in the wake of a nascent discourse about human rights. However, their links to remembrance and atonement um, were made mainly retrospectively and did not have much political salience at the time. So, as such, the international incentive structures and the zeitgeist of the post-war years were at best fruitful for atonement, but nowhere directly generated atonement as an explicit option or strategy for the effigy. So what then was it that sparked this um, atonement approach and one could inquire about Israel. Did Israel push West Germany towards atonement? Well, in Israel in the beginning years, as, as, as you well know, the public memory landscape was also one of silence. If anything, the notion of victimhood was widely discredited as a shameful identity for a nascent nation by both survivors and the new Israeli pioneers. Israeli political leaders, first and foremost um, David Ben-Gurion, stood for a new Israel which looked forward rather than backward. Yet the economic necessities of the Israeli state in a hostile environment soon gave way towards a more pragmatic approach, at least on the side of the Israeli politicians. Uh, Particularly the president of the um, Jewish World Congress, Naam Goldman, hereby played a crucial role when he began to insist that pursuing reparations in addition to individual claims would be an essential contribution to resettling the large amounts of displaced in Israel. So, following these pragmatic considerations, the total rejection of Germany was already weakened by 1950, and Foreign Minister Moshe Charette had put out at least the perspective for contacts conditional upon a form of restitution. So, importantly, with this... And on the political level again, Israel had signalled that it was willing to take up its painful victim status, at least internationally. And why? Because it promised to lead to strategic gains. And with this, they had accepted atonement as a political, pragmatic pathway. From a normative point of view. And this remained the tenor throughout the reparation negotiations. No money in the world, of course, could ever wipe out um, the German guild. Now, at the same time in West Germany, Konrad Adenauer faced the following predicament. As I've mentioned to you earlier, domestically, he had won the election by promoting democracy and westernization at the expense of silencing the Nazi past. However internationally now, West Germany was ostracized as a pariah because of this past and the recovery of its status would therefore imply a confrontation with the atrocious legacy. Especially now that Israeli diplomats had started to drop hints for an eventual rapprochement through reparation payments. And fitting all pieces of this puzzle together, Adenauer issued the following statement within the first days he took office. So, he said, in so far as it is possible, in the aftermath of the annihilation of millions of people beyond retrieval, the German people are willing to make good the injustice committed against the Jews in the German name by a criminal regime. We consider restitution, wiedergutmachung, as our duty. The federal federal government is committed to initiating appropriate action. So, crucially with this statement, Adenauer now too signaled that he was willing to participate in the political project that is atonement. And that his country would take on the role of a guilty atoning perpetrator, internationally. But, and as was the case with the Israelis, this painful role was only taken up because it promised strategic gains internationally. In other words, Adenauer had grasped the option of seeking status for his country with atonement, despite his awareness that the Nazi crimes can never be made good again, in a moral sense. So... I argue in my research that both sides had begun to view atonement as a pragmatic political solution in a situation where normative absolution is impossible. So atonement was born as a political strategy. And it is this thinking that was translated into concrete next steps, which in the end led up to the 1952 uh, Luxembourg Agreement. So, what's crucial for such a strategy to be born is this willingness on, this, on both sides to present and construct themselves into perpetrators and victims. Now, how did this happen? Well, the Israeli officials, and, 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 and for those of you who are interested in the historical details, so they were called David Horowitz and Maurice Fischer, They were crucial hereby. Upon meeting Adenauer in Paris, and obviously this meeting was um, fully secret, they made it clear from the very start that their cooperation would be contingent upon a public condemnation of the Nazi crimes by the German chancellor. Um, And with this, they requested nothing less from Adenauer than to publicly portray his country as a guilty perpetrator and his decision for reparation as atonement that is as guilt payments. And importantly with this move Israeli diplomats had made the walls of this bargain clear. So the Federal Republic is the guilty atoning perpetrator and they are accepting reparations only on the basis that they call themselves as such. And this crucially, didn't happen in the Austrian-Israeli case. And, by the way, also not in other examples that could be um, comparable, like in Japan, or between Japan and China. I'll talk about these uh, cases a, a little later. So, for now, back to the West German case. For Adenauer, of course, this Israeli request created a predicament in his meetings with the Israelis, he had understood that his public condemnation of the Nazi crimes was necessary to begin this road towards atonement. However, while on the one hand, such a public condemnation was now desirable to realize an international goal. um, On the other hand, this ran entirely counter to Adenauer's uh, domestic strategy with the Nazi past. So the crucial test for the German democracy that McCloy had talked about came when Adenauer brought this issue of reparations before the German Bundestag in September of uh, 1951. Now, I'm not reading out this um, entire document to you, but I'm, I'm talking you through it. And I'm highlighting the, the, the most important um, bits. So in this speech, Adenauer for the first time publicly acknowledged, and, 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 and that's a quote now the overwhelming suffering that the time of National Socialism has inflicted upon the Jews in Germany and the occupied countries. Now, this was the, acknowledge, the acknowledgement that the Israelis had desired. However, domestic ears were now listening mainly to this speech. To render his view acceptable to the broader German public, Adenauer thus stuck to a passive voice when referring to the suffering of the Jewish people, so as not to accidentally identify the perpetrators. So he cautiously underlined that, and that's now also a quote, even if a significant part of the German population did not personally participate in the crimes against the Jews, Unspeakable atrocities were nevertheless committed in the German name. And that alone obligated them to a moral and material compensation. Mm-hmm. Now, from this wording, you already see um, that Adenauer's speech represents a tightrope walk between two memory audiences. Um, To the outside, he delivered a remarkable early statement that signaled to the world that, or that signaled a West German commitment to atonement to the world. All the building blocks that I described to you earlier were already there. He acknowledged the wrongdoings in the German name, expressed guilt, shame, and remorse, as well as the will for wiedergutmachung. However, inside the country, there was no incentive structure for atonement. As such, internally, atonement only, only stood this test of democracy because of Adenauer's troubling circumlocations, which exculpated the majority of the Germans from their guilt. Okay, so to draw conclusions in the West German case, the international incentive structures and the zeitgeist, provided at most an indirect push towards atonement. Instead, what was crucial was the evolving negotiation between West Germans and Israelis, and their mutual acknowledgement of one another in their respective perpetrator and victim roles. Even though these roles were entirely unpopular, if not rejected domestically. So now this was the story that led West Germans towards atonement. And now let's look um, to Austria. Why did they not come onto the road towards atonement? So all the building blocks that I've just outlined to you um, for an atonement strategy were not in place between the Austrians and the Israelis. To begin with, the Israeli uh, efforts to ostracize Germany internationally were never extended onto Austria. Bilateral relations between Austria and Israel started as early as 1950. And despite domestic protests in Israel, Israel never termed Austria an enemy state. Israeli diplomats instead opted for a normalisation with Austria. And here you can um, read a quote from the first Israeli consul in Vienna, Ari Escher. So here he says, I've become convinced that we have to make a decision between the following two possibilities. Either we continue with the current contacts, that is a bit of recognition, a bit of anger, And then we exploit our special position in order to, as we did with Germany, claim reparation payments from Austria. Or we stop carrying on with this strategy because we've already missed the right point in time. And we promote a full normalization of the relationship in our own interest. (laughs) So this advice from Vienna once more reveals a certain degree of an active agency and choice of the victim to press for atonement, or not. And while in 1951 the official Israeli strategy apparently still manoeuvred somewhere in between, the decision soon tilted towards normalisation and the Israelis and Austrians began to negotiate a bilateral credit agreement at the same time when reparations were negotiated with the West Germans. Now a credit of course is a business agreement between two equals and it's very different by nature to a reparation agreement between a former victim and its perpetrator. Interestingly, in the very beginning of these negotiations, Israeli diplomats attempted to use the credit agreement to pressure Austria into what they had euphemistically called an accompanying friendship declaration. And Israeli diplomats envisioned this friendship declaration as something similar to Adenauer's speech. That is, they wanted an active acknowledgement um, of the Nazi crimes against the Austrian Jews. Yet in the Austrian case, Israeli diplomats only recommended this, but did not insist on such a statement. Now, The Austrians were entirely opposed, and as internal documents reveal, completely outraged about what they portrayed as an absurd Israeli request. However, in reality, they understood this Israeli attempt as, and and, and now this is a quote uh, from an archival document, a way to present Austria with the bill of the Nazi past through the back door of a credit agreement. And then in a remarkable early statement of Austria's victimhood narrative, Austrian diplomats replied to the Israelis with this quote. So, the Republic of Austria, which had itself been violently occupied by Nazi Germany, had nothing to do with these things, and therefore Austria sees no reason to explicitly state that in a friendship declaration. (laughs) In the end, a neutral formulation customary in normal business agreements between two friendly countries, was signed off. And here you can see this formulation. The Republic of Austria and Israel, aiming at strengthening the existing bond of peace between them via contract that fostered the amicable exchange between their territories, reflecting the intellectual, cultural, economic and business aims of their peoples, have decided to. So. By accepting such a um, credit agreement, Israel had therefore acknowledged that Austria or had acknowledged Austria in its role as a victim, rather than as a perpetrator, and the two countries began mutually beneficial economic relations at the same time when guilt payments were pursued from the FRG. and on his way to the signing ceremony in Luxembourg. Foreign Minister Charette underlined this difference once more and announced, Israel will not demand reparations from Austria. Israel accepts the supposition that Germany is responsible for um, the acts committed against the Austrian Jews since they took place only after the Anschluss. Now, retrospectively, the question naturally arises as to why Israel had done so. And historians, up until this day, um, try to understand Charette's decisiveness in this matter. I'd argue that, as was the case with regards to West Germany, the international environment had played a crucial role in this. The Allied powers had designated Austria as the first victim of Nazi Germany as early as 1943. And this, of course, was a wartime calculation. However, it was picked up by Austria's anti-Nazi elites who began to form the Second Republic. And for Austria, particularly when looking outwards to international incentive structures, a story of victimhood under Nazi Germany had immense political expediency not least because it opened the possibility for a swift departure of the occupying powers and the country's independence. As such and as was the case in West Germany, albeit now towards a different road, the international community indirectly allowed Austria to build its memory of innocence and victimhood. At the backdrop of the beginning competition between East and West, the Soviet Union and the US were interested in absolving Austria from its past, by placing it as a neutral buffer between um, between them, rather than dividing it up as they did with guilty Germany. And especially the US was willing to play along with Austria's fabricated victimhood to secure it from Soviet claims. And this probably also forced the Israelis into the direction of accepting a different status for Austria and Germany. And as a result of all of this, Austria by 1955 was independent, however its independence and neutrality came at the expense of blocking its road towards atonement. Okay. Conclusions and how to look ahead. Um, I hope to have shown you in this presentation that in the case of West Germany, the country's official atonement approach originated certainly not domestically, but rather in its international interactions and incentives. However, while the international environment including its most powerful actors and the broader mindset of the time, provided at most an indirect push towards atonement. What was crucial was this evolving reciprocity between West Germany as the designated perpetrator and Israel as its victim. So, Counter to the conventional view, the Allies, especially the US, had not deliberately pushed the FRG into reparations. In fact, they had refused Israeli requests uh, twice, however this refusal perhaps had the unintended consequence of forcing both sides into direct negotiations with one another, a step that essentially paved the pathway towards atonement. And notably, and again somewhat counter to widespread beliefs whether the FRG and Israel were normative allies with the idea of atonement. Their domestic struggles, in fact, suggest that they were not, had little weight in the discussion about reparations. What mattered was that both sides accepted to translate the normative atonement means into strategic international ends and these strategic ends could only be constructed together. So atonement is an active political project, albeit couched in this normative language. It needs to unfold, therefore, as a deliberate role play between the perpetrator and its victim. And crucially, this didn't happen in the Austrian case. And it also did not happen in the case of another one of World War II's perpetrator states, Japan. Like in Austria, in Japan the reciprocity of the victims was wholly absent from the picture. And now, obviously I am not an expert in East Asia, but the People's Republic of China, which would have been the target of Japanese reparations, unlike Israel, never reciprocated early attempts. And prefer to forego war reparations in return for political recognition in the post war environment. And the United States, too, had provided no incentives for Japan. Again, and against the looming Cold War, the US had an interest in protecting Japan's old place and status within East Asia rather than ostracizing Japan as the East Asian pariah. So as a result, the popular internal narrative of Japan as a victim was, unlike in the West German case and like in the Austrian case, internationally accepted in the post-war years. Now, and I am ending here, what does all of this mean to those with a normative agenda who want to encourage atonement approaches for other perpetrator countries around the world? Well, I'd suggest to look closely at the international relations of potential atoners and their victims, but also the international community and its powerful actors that may infuse atonement with the recognition of status, and they may this time around deliberately uh, facilitate direct negotiations between the concerned states. The changed normative environment that we live in in the 21st century, so the age of apology as it was termed by some scholars, can only help with this effort. However, as I have hoped to have shown you, moral complicity in this normative idea surrounding atonement was neither a given nor an essential part of the deal between the Israelis and the Germans. What, however, did change the equation on both sides was the understanding of atonement as a pragmatic political tool to leverage political advantage internationally. So it was this insight that incentivized strategic compliance with atonement without having to rely on a normative alignment with the spirit of atonement itself. Thanks very much.